no care leader ever wants to be in a position where they face a CQC prosecution. But the reality is that it does happen. In these circumstances, it's important to understand what power the CQC has, what the process looks like, and what the potential outcomes are. To understand more about this subject, I sat down with Samantha Guest, who's a lawyer at Ridouts and an expert in this field. Prevention is, of course, always better than cure. So importantly, we also discuss how to prevent prosecution happening in the first place. My name's Simon Parker, and this is the Care Leaders Network podcast. Today, Samantha and I will be discussing the CQC's power to prosecute. So, Samantha, why is it so important that we talk about CQC prosecutions? Simon, I think for all providers, knowledge is power. And I think ultimately for a lot of social, social or health and social care providers, apologies, um, they know a lot about CQC actions by way of enforcement acts or inspections. So be that a draft inspection report, be it warning notices, be it a notice of proposal or notice of decision. They're quite well versed with managing those matters because they are fairly frequent. The thing with the CQC is that they do have prosecution enforcement powers, but I would say they fairly and frequently use them. And so as a result, people don't tend to be so familiar with the process and it can catch people off guard. So I think it's good to have a discussion to let people know that this exists and what those powers are so that people can kind of be prepared because preparation is always key with these sorts of things. Preparation is always key. What do they say? Uh, if you prepare to fail, no. If you pre- if you prepare, uh, if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That's the one that I was groping for. Uh, I knew what I was trying to say. Um, so yeah, obviously that 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 is something that's particularly uh, pertinent. I think in this in this set of circumstances. So thank you just for uh, for for just mapping that out for us. So um, what what power does the CQC have to prosecute a provider obviously you've highlighted the fact that that's a a lever that they won't often pull um Mm -hmm. but of course they do so yeah what's what are the things that they can enforce at that at that stage yeah of course so i mean a prosecution is what somebody would expect it to be i guess from what tv shows or movies maybe show people it is a criminal prosecution so that does mean that criminal charges are brought against a provider or somebody with a management or director status within the provider's kind of company. Um, CQC only tend to prosecute quite serious or persistent breaches of a regulation. Um, And so as a result, they are fairly infrequent, the the prosecution cases, simply because they do tend to take a fairly considered approach. Now, not to hopefully bore listeners too much, but just so people get some sort of inside scoop into the type of regulations that get prosecuted. There have been a number of recent prosecutions with respect to Section 10 of the Health and Social Care Act, which concerns carrying out a regulated activity without registration. Regulation 12, something most providers will be fairly familiar with, which is safe care and treatment. Regulation 13, failure to safeguard people. Regulation 16, a failure to simply notify the CQC of an incident or notifiable matter. 
Regulation 20A, which is merely a failure to display your CQC performance rating. And Section 64 of the Health and Social Care Act is a failure to provide information which the CQC has deemed to be necessary. I'm going to come back to that point because it's something which providers definitely need to be quite switched on to at some point within this podcast. So you can see that providers, well, the CQC, do have fairly extensive prosecution powers with what it is that they can bring as a criminal proceeding. Like all criminal matters, there are certain legalities and thresholds that need to be reached before the CQC can jump to a conclusion of prosecuting a provider. And those are merely internal discussions that I guess would happen at the CQC. But basically, in brief, there needs to be a realistic prospect of conviction based on the evidence that they have managed to obtain and it needs to be considered to be within the public interest to bring that prosecution. Obviously public interest are words that get thrown around quite a lot um, in this setting and many settings but you can see why it's important because it's public money that's being spent and it's also public money um, or public who are being protected through the actions that CQC are taking. So public interest is a big point. Right. Yeah. No, I think um, the uh, uh, understanding the key areas, uh, the specific regulations where people are likely to or poss- possibly get caught out, as I think is a is a really, really important thing to to bullet point because it's just it makes it really, really clear. Um, I think your last point around the the kind of the public interest, of course, that's the the reason why the CQC exists. Uh, of course, some might question some of the way that the CQC acts in that respect sometimes. Um, but that's probably a conversation for uh, for another day. Fundamentally, it should be part of their purpose to make sure that uh, the the people um, in care services uh, who are are being cared for, of course, are being properly looked after. Um, and of course, that's a societal societal thing as uh, as well. So. Um, Sorry to jump in for a second, but one point of interest with the public interest aspect is that CQC are very transparent with their prosecution action, and this is something that providers and listeners would probably be quite interested in, is that they do actually actively display their prosecutions on their prosecutions page on their website, and it's actually appendix by way of an Excel spreadsheet. Now, what's interesting with this is it details their prosecution action, I believe, from 2009 all the way through to, I think it was updated at the end of May 2023. So they keep fairly up to date with this prosecution spreadsheet. I guess the interesting point and the reason I kind of hesitated to say that CQC don't frequently prosecute is because of the number that are listed there I think it's something like 116 prosecutions are listed there over half of them have been brought forward in the last three years so it's evident that there is an increase in the use of this power hence why I think this discussion is very important because maybe providers need to be more on guard or aware if the CQC are kind of sniffing around for potential prosecution purposes. That's an interesting point. And thank you for bringing that up, actually, because I think if, if somebody's in a set of circumstances where they've um, where they've either definitely broken one of those regulations or are effectively being um, 
uh, approached by the CQC because they think there's been a, a breach of the of the regulations. Having data that they can go from to look at previous cases as uh, as well, I think would be really useful for for people to be able to uh, to, to create their response. I think that's a, a really important part of that as uh, as well. I'd be really interested to know, and I guess the the one would have to undergo a process of looking at the various different dates, et cetera, to see um, what that, obviously you've highlighted the fact that the over the last three years, half of the um, uh, half the prosecutions have, have happened kind of more laterally, if you if you like. It'd be interesting to plot that on a, on a graph and to see, if, if, is that something that's, what the trend is there? Is it something that happened broadly over the last three years? It's something that's had a massive uptick recently because, of course, to my understanding, 50% of the inspections over the last maybe 12 months have resulted in a downgrading from the CQC. Um, and there's there's various different reasons why people believe that's the, the case. You've got people who think, um, who are of the opinion that uh, the CQC are generally being more uh, aggressive. You've got uh, the fact that they're looking to target maybe services that aren't performing quite so well. So they're just being more strategic and operating in a way which is consistent with uh, undergoing inspections of organ uh, care organisations and care services that are um, that are particularly troubled, broadly speaking. Um, and of course, some people just think that the CQC are bearing their teeth at the moment. Again, th there's probably an element of truth in maybe all of those things in 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 different contexts. Um, but yeah, maybe some 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 scrutinisation of those uh, plotting those dates out on a graph would be an interesting exercise at, at some point to see what that what that trend looks like as it stands today and more more recently. I also think another level of complexity to that is the wide date range in which CQC may bring these prosecutions. So whilst we're talking about a bracket from 2009 to 2023, as of last month, some of those prosecutions could date all the way back to 2020 or predate 2009 back three years. So, so there is another degree of complexity with that. Um, CQC, and again, I'll, I will make sure I touch on this, remind me if I don't, but again, CQC do have a limitation period in which they can bring these prosecutions, which is something that we are seeing quite a lot on our end, is them almost reaching the, the end bracket of that limitation. Now, whether that's because of a COVID backlog, again, that is a possibility. People are still feeling the effects of, you know, backlog and systems. But it does mean that sometimes a provider not only is off guard because they've never dealt with a prosecution before, but from their perspective, the incident that may form the baseline for this prosecution is now some two and a half years in age. So you're asking people to really, really jog their memory, jog their paperwork. Staff might have changed, service users have changed. There's a whole heap of situations which could make kind of recalling that prosecution quite difficult no i can imagine and like what does a prosecution look like i guess it's a, a, a the my reason for asking is almost um you, you mentioned earlier people might have a preconceived image of what it might look like through maybe the movies or or, or watching a, a i don't know like a drama or a documentary or something along those along those lines um but maybe that's a little bit of an abstract concept so are you able to add some some color to the um to yet yeah, specifically just to frame in the audience's mind exactly what it what it does look like 
of course, happily, you will have to pull me back if I start going on a bit of a rant. In a previous life, I was a criminal lawyer. So this is very much my uh, niche. So I have a lot of knowledge in this kind of background. Um, essentially, the reason why a criminal prosecution from the CQC can be a little bit blurry is because there's kind of a prosecution investigation process and then the actual laying of the charge. So I'm going to go a bit backwards and start from the laying of the charge. Once a charge is laid, the process is very simple and, and it fits quite nicely into the TV shows and the movie dramas that people might have seen. Basically, a provider is served a summons, which is a charging document advising them that these charges have been laid against them and they need to answer them at a relevant court. So that is essentially a plea entrance. As everybody will know, there are two plea options, a guilty and a not guilty. Basically a decision that the provider makes in either which direction results in different pathways. So if somebody were to enter a guilty plea at first appearance, then the matter progresses to sentencing. All decisions around sentencing are made by a judicial officer who will be influenced by discussions from either the provider or the provider's legal representative, as well as the CQC and their legal representative. If somebody opts to defend the charge by way of entering a not guilty plea, then the matter proceeds eventually to a trial in which the evidence is tested, witnesses are called, they're asked questions, and they're cross-examined. As a result, at the end of that whole process, the judicial officer will make a decision or a finding based on the evidence that they have heard. So they will hand down a plea of guilty or not guilty, essentially finding the parties, either one of those pleas. Again, if somebody is found not guilty by a judicial officer, then that's it. The charge is done, it's dismissed, there's nothing further. If somebody is found guilty, then again, we proceed to the sentencing route and the same situation occurs. Now, that's all fairly cut and dry because it's all tied up in process and procedure, which is all governed by legislation and everything along those lines. The unclear part is where CQC are undertaking their investigation. Now, I touched on before what we call a limitation period. Under the Health and Social Care Act, the CQC have a limitation of three years from the date of the offence to be able to bring this prosecution. Now, there is another test which suggests 12 months. Again, there's a lot of legalese around that point, so I would recommend talking to a lawyer to discuss those little bits and pieces. But for the purpose of this discussion, three years is the limitation period. Over that three-year period, the CQC essentially undertakes its own investigation. So if I create a fake scenario for you, an investigation happens in a care home in February 2022. The day after the incident, the CQC are notified. The CQC essentially has three years from the date of that incident to decide whether they want to bring a prosecution. Now, what this can mean is that there's a lot of questions asked by the CQC to a provider. Now, unsurprisingly, when a provider hears from their regulator, there can be a little bit of a <gasps> moment. You know, what, what am I expected to do? How do I manage this situation? 
if they're wanting to manage a relationship and have a good working relationship, most providers' gut instinct is to just give the CQC whatever they, they are asking for. Now, this is where I pause and I hope this message becomes clear for all parties. The CQC have powers to, to use a nicer word, oblige a provider to give them information. That falls under section 64 of the Health and Social Care Act. So basically, if a provider is given a section 64 letter from the CQC requesting information, they are obliged to provide what is requested. Now, anybody who was listening to my earlier spiel will kind of hear section 64 and think, oh, Samantha mentioned that as one of the uh, prosecution powers or one of the charges that the CQC can bring against a provider. So we kind of see full circle here. If a section 64 request is made of a provider and they fail to fulfill that request, then a criminal prosecution can be brought against them pursuant to section 64 and their failure. However, CQC often do not utilize section 64. For reasons I don't have the answer to, they often do not make requests under section 64. Instead, they will send what appears to be a fairly formal looking letter to a provider requesting information. And this letter is normally accompanied by, I'm prone to exaggeration, by a hundred plus questions, which they would like a provider to answer. There will be no mention of 60, section 64. It will just have words and structured sentences and mentionings of prosecution, which potentially frighten a provider into wanting to comply. I urge, urge, urge anybody listening to this who has had this happen or, or maybe there's one sitting in an inbox to contact counsel, preferably Redouts, um, and have some discussion with a lawyer to determine whether you are actually under an obligation to provide that information. The reason I kind of stress this point is that what these very formal but not legally formal letters require or are attempting to do is attempting to get a provider to give the CQC information which assists their case against the provider. Now I think anybody listening to kind of the amount of words that I've managed to say in a very short space of time is either incredibly confused or can kind of see the contradiction in that situation. In any criminal prosecution the standard, the, the person who has the responsibility to prove the charge is the prosecutor. So as the opposing party, you do not want to be feeding them information which strengthens their case against you for you to then have to answer to information you've provided. You're essentially setting them up for success and potentially setting yourself up for failure. Hence why whenever there are those requests, it would just be good to reach out to somebody who is even an independent third party, just so that the initial scare factor is removed and you can see what your obligations actually are. So just to make sure that I've, I've not misunderstood that, okay, so you've got the regulatory framework, which expects a certain amount of information, 
but the CQC's approach is to ask for substantially more than that information. And of course, answering that information in its entirety um, would be uh, potentially um, not provide a great outcome because they've asked for information in a kind of seemingly kind of not aggressive by nature, but like by asking more, more they're kind of taking a more aggressive stance yeah. to, to, to weight the set of circumstances as much in their favor as possible effectively. Yeah. They're, 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 they're stacking the chips in, in, in their favor by asking such a, uh, a overly robust and maybe overly comprehensive list of, of questions. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, correct. So, so I guess to kind of really go cut and dry with the situation Section 64 of the Health and Social Care Act gives CQC powers to request information which somebody is obliged to provide. So essentially, if you receive a Section 64, you are obliged to provide whatever is requested. Now, again, the legal, the lawyer in me goes, okay, well, pass it to a lawyer and a lawyer can review it and you can literally provide to the T what is requested. Don't go above and beyond. So that's section 64, little wriggle room to be able to say, no, thank you, don't want to comply. In fact, no wriggle room because you could end up with a criminal prosecution being brought against you. However, the CQC, rather than utilise the section 64 power, most of the time tend to simply prepare a rather lengthy, wordy and almost overly formal and polite letter requesting information from a provider in which they basically invite them to come and do an interview and they prepare them for this interview by listing a series of questions that they would like answered. There is no obligation under that approach for somebody to give that information. Now, obviously, there can be circumstances where this is basically a, an instigator of prosecution. This is the first time that a provider might get a whiff that the CQC are contemplating on bringing prosecution action against them. And maybe it's a situation where a provider feels they have all of the answers and those answers actually will assist the CQC in deciding, hey, no, actually, we don't think we need to prosecute these people. Now that we've been benefited by all of this information, we can see that a prosecution is not beneficial. However, you need to remember that the CQC are going to interpret information in a way that suits what they believe has happened. So there's a cautionary tale there. You need to be cautious before even contemplating providing that information. I would say 90% of the time when we have somebody come to us and say, hey, I've received this letter, we will essentially prepare a very polite letter back to the CQC saying this incident occurred over 18 months ago, notification was made at that point, relevant information was also provided at, at that point, which the CQC have in their hot little possession. And so we politely decline to address what you've requested in this letter. Sure. Makes, makes sense. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay. And what are the potential outcomes of a prosecution? So 90% of the kind of charges I listed before, or the regulatory breaches that I listed before, carry finable only penalties. 
Now, fineable only would be lovely if there was a cap on that fine. Unfortunately, there isn't. So these fines are unlimited. And um, that does mean unlimited in the most horrific sense. There is no consistency with the fines that are being handed down to providers um, if they're found or enter a guilty plea at a criminal prosecution. The spreadsheet that I mentioned before um, does list fines that were handed down at sentencing. So that's also quite an interesting comparative point. Anybody who wants to go away and look at that will see that the fines vary from 500 pounds in one instance to all the way up to 2.5 million pounds. So there is a very, very broad variety of fines that can be handed down. Obviously, judges at sentencing are required to take certain factors into consideration. We call them aggravating or mitigating factors in the legalese talk. What that essentially means is they will consider the financial position of a provider before handing down a fine. And there are also certain discounts for, say, entering a guilty plea at the first appearance. So, so there are little nuances which may alter a fine that end up be, ends up being imposed. One little catch-all that I would just kind of add is that if you were to be facing a prosecution under Section 10 of the Health and Social Care Act, um, there is an imprisonment sentence that also accompanies that. So I know when people hear that, they can automatically kind of go, what are you talking about? But what that means is that on the charging document, if you were to be charged with a Section 10 offence, you could face a fine and or a period of imprisonment of up to 12 months. Now, that means that's the maximum penalty. So 12 months is as high as it gets. Um, there have been some occasions where a provider has faced a um, prison term, but it has mostly very infrequent and it is mostly because of a persistence or repetition of section 10 breaches section 10 is the failure to um carry well failure to have registration so carrying out an activity unregistered got you okay no that makes uh, sense of course that's the worst case scenario um i guess some people may be uh consuming this piece of content thinking oh this is all, all a bit doom and gloom uh, of course these are very much worst case scenarios and one would hope that uh, providers don't get them in a set of circumstances where the what we're talking about is a is a reality but of course it does happen hence the reason for us to have this conversation just make sure that we're sharing some useful insights if the worst case does come to come to fruition for whatever reason so i guess my last question uh, uh and this is a I, I guess it's about preventative measures but how does a provider go about making sure that they prevent prosecution in the in the first place yeah of course i mean simon like we said at the beginning of the podcast preparation is key and ultimately the whole point of this podcast is to raise those worst case scenarios and just draw them to some some portion in a provider's mind so that they have the knowledge that if they ever happen to be facing this, they at least are not starting from ground zero and, and could hopefully rely on some of the information here. Preventing is probably quite a strong word to use in the circumstances because once the CQC have made a decision to prosecute, that's their decision. So ultimately, if it has been laid, 
then the prosecution is active and it's about managing the prosecution as and when it happens. One thing I would say is that the CQC are fairly robust when they consider laying a prosecution. So they do use that investigation time to really consider whether they have, to use colloquial terms, a winning case. And you will see on the Excel spreadsheet that the majority of providers do accept responsibility for what the CQC has put before them, um, be that because there is an understanding that they should be held accountable and they are responsible. Hence why the numbers of prosecutions, when you consider the amount of people that the CQC regulate, is actually fairly small. So that should hopefully also give the audience a little bit of peace of mind. We are very much talking about a little penny in the ocean of the CQC. In terms of preventative measures, it's the normal correspondence that you would receive from somebody in the sector. Make sure that every step of the way you are documenting you have policies which are updated and are relevant for the needs of your service. Most, most prosecutions will centre around an incident or an accident. So that really means that the paperwork or the measures that you put in place at that time need to be up to standard and need to be fulfilling the purpose that they are there for. Ultimately, if somebody is record keeping, if somebody is providing the care which suits the needs of an individual, then there is very little that the CQC can criticize. So again, we go back to documentation, we go back to governance, we go back to making sure that the environment that you are operating in is absolutely airtight. So that is probably the biggest preventative measure. In terms of maybe taking steps once you get a whiff of the fact that the CQC are potentially looking at doing a prosecution against you, it's about seeking legal advice. It's about addressing any correspondence which is brought to you from the viewpoint of they may be considering prosecuting me. I need to be cautious about the information that I decide to provide because the obligation is on the CQC, not on me. And so that is just where I would urge a provider to reach out to somebody to ensure that you can have any correspondence reviewed, ensure that you're fulfilling any obligations, if there are obligations attached to the correspondence, and then proceed with the knowledge of beneficial advice from a lawyer. Ultimately, if a provider feels that they're in a position to dispel or, or remove a prosecution at the investigation stage, then that's a discussion to have with legal counsel. That's a discussion in which you could sit down with us, we could talk to you and say, oh, okay, I can see that you have everything clear as day in documentary evidence. Maybe that's not on the CQC's desk. Let's provide that to the CQC and let's really explain it in a letter to them, hopefully to assist their investigation and their conclusion that a prosecution is not necessary. Again, caution is always the approach when lawyers are involved, but it's caution for a reason. Um, and those are just discussions that are very context-based, context and circumstances-based, and not really something that I can give a great wealth of information on at a very high-level discussion over a podcast. 
Sure. I understand in those sets of circumstances, it makes sense to pick up the phone, drop an email and say, hey, we've got this set of circumstances. Can we can yeah. we have that? Yeah. So yeah. really appreciate that. Uh, you're so insightful. You really, really know your subject matter. Uh, obviously very passionate about it as uh, as well. So thank you so much for explaining what CQC prosecutions are and exactly how to prevent them as uh, as well. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And yeah, if anybody ever has any questions, I'm more than happy to have a conversation.